The British Library The British Empire built its greatest monuments out of paper. At the British Library, you'll see some of the many documents, literary, historical, and musical, that changed the course of history. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Thanks for joining me on a guided walk through the best collection anywhere of old books, maps, scriptures, and historical letters. These National Archives of Britain include more than 12 million books, 180 miles of shelving, and the deepest basement in London. But everything that matters for our visit is in one delightful room, where the most important documents are on display. Start with these top stops, then stray according to your interests. Allow yourself an hour to do justice to this audio tour. We'll stand before ancient Bibles, the works of Shakespeare, highlights of English Lit 101, the Magna Carta, and, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. How to use this audio guide. As you can see from the display window on your MP3 player, each of the British Library's greatest hits has its own title and track number, much like the song tracks of a CD or album. You can skip ahead or tailor your itinerary to your own tastes. But navigating through the British Library on your own can be confusing, and it's easiest to just follow the tour in the order I've laid out. To help you along, I've invited my colleague, Lisa. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, Rick. She'll give directions from one exhibit to the next. After listening to her directions, you can pause the audio guide, then restart it at the next track when you're ready to see the next piece. Be aware that even with the very best of directions, museum going can be confusing. Exhibits are routinely moved, sent out on loan, or tucked away for restoration. If you're taking this tour with my Rick Steves Audio Europe app, don't miss its latest features. There are zoomable maps showing the route in each stop. These are viewable while you listen. A 20-second rewind button allows you to catch something you might have missed or hear vital directions a second time. And the speed button makes me talk faster, chipmunk style. You can read the actual script of this tour, and if you'd like more information on the spot, you can download our entire guidebook on this destination with a couple of clicks. Those following this tour on their iPod rather than with my fancier app may find that my guidebook to this place, with its maps, photos, and exhibit titles, can make following this audio tour easier. Be flexible, and don't hesitate to ask for help by showing a picture of an exhibit to a security guard who can point the way. Here in London, many people speak English. Now, let's enter the British Library and get started. Lisa, take us in. Thanks, Rick. The tour begins. In the courtyard outside the entrance, you'll see a big statue. It depicts a naked Isaac Newton bending forward with a compass to measure the universe. This naked Newton symbolizes the library's purpose, to gather all knowledge and promote our endless search for truth. Stepping inside, you'll find the information desk and other services. Our tour starts directly ahead. Climb the 15 stairs to the entrance to the gallery. The room is labeled the Treasures of the British Library, or the Sir John Ritblatt Gallery, or sometimes just the Treasures. The gallery is just one small part of this large complex. The extensive reading rooms where scholars do research are upstairs and not open to the general public. Enter the Treasures Room and let your eyes adjust. 
This priceless collection is all in one large, dimly lit room. Oh. Oh. Sorry, Lisa, I didn't see you there. You're right, it is dim. The room has display cases grouped according to themes. Historical documents, literature, music, science, and so on. Our tour starts straight ahead, so make your way to the far side of the room. Look for a set of displays on maps. Throughout our tour, focus on the big picture. Don't be too worried about locating every specific map or scroll or manuscript that we might mention. Enjoy the whole exhibit and whatever's on display today. Start with the wall of maps. Maps. The historic maps show how humankind's perspective of the world has expanded over the centuries. These pieces of paper, encoded with information gleaned from travelers, could be passed along to future generations. Each generation built upon the knowledge of the last. The earliest maps made in Britain and Europe featured only the small local world they knew. These early maps put medieval man in an unusual position, looking down on his homeland from 50 miles up in the air. Within a few centuries, maps of Europe were of such high quality they could be used today to plan a trip. Within a century or two after Columbus, the entire globe was fairly well-mapped, including America. Well, except for the area beyond the well-mapped east coast. Out there was the vast expanse of unknown land labeled Terra Incognita. When you've finished exploring the maps, move into the area dedicated to sacred texts. Sacred Texts, Early Bibles. Browse the cases. You'll likely see some old, decaying fragments of parchment or papyrus. The writing is in antiquated Latin, Greek, Egyptian, or other dead languages. Consider the fact that many of humankind's oldest writings were dedicated to spiritual aspirations. Often on display are some of the earliest versions of the Bible. These include some early bound books with pages, called a codex. Start with the Codex Sinaiticus. This codex, or early bound book, is from around 350 A.D. It's one of the oldest complete Bibles in existence, one of the first attempts to collect various books by different authors into one authoritative anthology. The codex is in Greek, the language in which most of the New Testament was originally written. The Old Testament portions are Greek translations from the original Hebrew. Jesus didn't speak English, of course, nor did Moses or Isaiah or Paul or any other Bible authors or characters. Jesus spoke Aramaic, a form of Hebrew. His words were written down in Greek decades after Jesus' death. Then, various Greek manuscripts were compiled into anthologies like the Codex Sinaiticus. These were then translated into Latin, the language of medieval monks and scholars. Greek and Latin manuscripts were later translated into English. So, our present-day English Bible didn't come directly from the mouths and pens of these religious figures. Rather, it's the fitful product of centuries of oral tradition, evolution, and translation. Today, Bible scholars pour diligently over every word from these earliest known versions of the Bible 
trying to separate Jesus' authentic words from those that seem to have been added later. Nearby, you may find another early Bible, the Codex Alexandrinus. It dates from 425 A.D. These two early Bibles contain some writings not included in most modern Bibles. Even today, Catholic Bibles contain books not found in Protestant Bibles. So, there are several things that editors need to do to compile the most accurate Bible. First, they need to decide which books actually belong. Then, find the oldest and most accurate version of each book. And finally, they need to translate it correctly. Nearby, you'll find more early Bibles, along with other texts, in another set of display cases. The Art of the Book You'll see various medieval-era books, some beautifully illustrated. The lettering is immaculate, but all are penned by hand. Some are labeled Bibles, meaning collections of sacred writings. Others are Gospels, which specifically cover the history of Jesus. There are Psalters, or songs from the Bible, and books of hours, filled with prayers and inspiring Bible quotes. What they all have in common is their beauty, in both the calligraphy and the illustrations. After the fall of Rome, the Christian message was preserved by monks who reproduced ancient Bibles by hand. This was a painstaking process, usually done for a rich patron. The Bibles were often beautifully illustrated or illuminated. The most magnificent of these medieval British monkuscripts is the Lindisfarne Gospels from A.D. 698. The text is in Latin, the language of scholars ever since the Roman Empire. The illustrations, with elaborate tracery and interwoven decoration, mix Irish, classical, and even Byzantine forms. By the way, you can read an electronic copy of these manuscripts by using touchscreen computers that are scattered around the room. These Gospels are a reminder that Christianity almost didn't make it in Europe. After the fall of Rome, which had established Christianity as the empire's official religion, much of Europe reverted to its pagan ways. People worshipped woodland spirits and terrible Teutonic gods. Lindisfarne was an obscure monastery of Irish monks on a remote island off the east coast of England. But during that chaotic time, it was one of the few beacons of light, tending the embers of civilization through the long night of the Dark Ages. It took 500 years before Christianity was fully reestablished in Europe. Continue browsing both the art of the book and the sacred texts. You'll likely see some early English Bibles. You might find copies of the King James Version, the Wycliffe Bible, or others from the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. By 1400, there was still no English version of the Bible, even though only a small percentage of the population understood Latin. A few brave reformers risked death to translate these sacred books into English and print them using Gutenberg's new invention, the printing press. Within two centuries, English translations were both legal and popular. These Bibles are written in the same language you speak, but try reading them. The lettering is strange, and many words are out of date and unintelligible. It clearly shows how quickly languages evolve. The King James Version, so-called because it was done during his reign, has been the most widely used English translation. 
50 scholars worked for four years here in London, borrowing heavily from previous translations to produce this work. Its impact on the English language was enormous. It made Elizabethan English something of the standard, even after people stopped saying thee and thou and verily, verily. Recent translations are more readable using modern English speech patterns. They also aim to be more accurate, based on better scholarship and being translated directly from the earliest manuscripts. But there are still problems trying to translate old phrases to fit contemporary viewpoints. Case in point, our generation's debate over whether the God of the Bible should be a he or a she. If God is a woman, then how do we explain the existence of hockey? Hmm, Good point. Next, turn your attention to the glass case along the wall dedicated to early printing. Among the exhibits are printed pages from China and a famous Gutenberg Bible. Printing the Gutenberg Bible Before looking at Gutenberg's Bible, ponder the early Chinese pages printed long before Gutenberg. Like so much else, printing was invented by the Chinese. Centuries before the printing press in Europe, pictures of Buddha surrounded by prayers and Chinese characters were mass-produced. The faithful gained a blessing by saying the prayer, and so did the printer by reproducing it. The prints were made using wooden blocks carved with Chinese characters, dipped into paint or ink, and pressed by hand onto the page. Now find the Gutenberg Bible from around 1455. It was so revolutionary because it introduced a new technique, movable type. Johann Gutenberg, a German silversmith, devised a convenient way to reproduce written materials quickly, neatly, and affordably. You carve each letter onto a separate metal block. Then you can arrange them into words, ink them up, and press them onto paper. When one job was done, you could reuse the same letters for the next job. This simple idea had immediate and revolutionary consequences. Suddenly, the Bible was available for anyone to read. This new technology helped fuel the Protestant Reformation. Protestants preached that the written word of God was the ultimate authority, and now every Tom, Dick, and Heinrich could afford a copy. Suddenly, knowledge, both secular and religious, became affordable and accessible to a wide audience, not just church officials and the wealthy. Books became the mass medium of Europe, linking people by a common set of ideas. Now move on to the adjoining room where you'll find several documents of the Magna Carta. Magna Carta Question. How did Britain, a tiny island with just a few million people, come to rule a quarter of the world? Not by force, but by rule of law. The Magna Carta was the basis for England's system of law and constitutional government. Though historians talk about the Magna Carta, several different versions of the document exist, some of which are kept in this room. Start with the document labeled the Articles of the Barons. It bears the seal of England's King John. In 1215, England's barons rose in revolt against the slimy king. Remember, John appears as a villain in the legends of Robin Hood. After losing London, John was forced to negotiate. The barons presented him with this list of demands. John, whose rule was worthless without the barons' support, had no choice but to agree, 
and to affix his seal to it. A few days after John agreed to this original document, it was rewritten in legal form, known as the Magna Carta, or Great Charter. Some 35 copies were distributed all around the kingdom. This was a turning point in the history of government. Until then, kings had ruled by God-given authority, above the laws of men. Now, for the first time, there were limits in writing on how a king could treat his subjects. More generally, it reaffirmed the right of habeas corpus, the notion that a government cannot imprison someone without a legitimate legal reason. This small step became the basis for all constitutional government since then, including ours. So what did this radical piece of paper actually say? Not much by today's standards. The specific demands had to do with things such as inheritance taxes, the king's duties to widows and orphans, and so on. It wasn't the specific articles that were important, but the simple fact that the king had to abide by them as law. Now return to the main room. As you pass the displays on printing, turn left. You'll find display cases dedicated to science as well as the art of science. Science, Leonardo da Vinci's Notebook The printed word spread religious ideas, but it also helped disseminate secular knowledge. During the Renaissance, men turned their attention away from heaven and toward the nuts and bolts of the material world around them. Among the documents here, you might find some by trailblazing early scientists like Leonardo da Vinci, Galileo, or Isaac Newton. Pages from Leonardo's notebook show this powerful curiosity, his genius for invention, and his famous backward and inside-out handwriting, which makes sense only if you know Italian and have a mirror. Leonardo's restless mind pondered diverse subjects. His doodles ranged from how birds fly to the flow of the Arno River, from military fortifications to an early helicopter and to the earthshine reflecting onto the moon. One person's research inspired another's, and books allowed knowledge, secular knowledge, to accumulate. Galileo championed the counter-common-sense notion that the earth spun around the sun. Isaac Newton later perfected the mathematics of those moving celestial bodies. Now, look around you. Nearby are many historical documents. The displays change frequently, but you may see letters by Queen Elizabeth I, Thomas More, Florence Nightingale, Gandhi, and others. It's clear you could spend days in here, browsing the collection. But for now, let's trace the evolution of English literature. You'll find English Lit nearby. Start by finding one of the oldest works in the English language, Beowulf. English Literature Ponder the copy of Beowulf, the first English literary masterpiece over a thousand years old. The manuscript is from 1000 A.D., but the story itself dates to about 750. In this epic story, the young hero Beowulf defeats two half-human monsters threatening the kingdom. It may sound like a video game, but Beowulf symbolizes England's emergence from the chaos and barbarism of the Dark Ages. 
As you browse through Beowulf and other early works, think of how much our language has changed. This Anglo-Saxon epic poem is written in Old English, an early version of our language which is almost unrecognizable today. As you ponder this and other early English manuscripts, consider the 2,000-year evolution of our English language. Four out of every five English words have been borrowed from other languages, brought to England by foreign invaders. First, there was the language of the original Celtic tribesmen from Bronze Age times. Next came the Latin-speaking Romans, who conquered and colonized the Isle of Britain around the time of Christ. After the fall of Rome around 500 A.D., Germanic tribes called Angles and Saxons invaded. They made English a mostly Germanic language. The Angles named the island Angoland, or England. Next came the Vikings from Denmark around 800 A.D. Finally, there's the French-speaking Normans under William the Conqueror, who arrived in the year 1066. All these languages, Celtic, Latin, Anglo-Saxon, Norse, French, were mixed together. This stew of tongues simmered a few centuries. Mmm, sounds yummy. By around 1400, Old English had evolved into Middle English, the language of Geoffrey Chaucer. Chaucer wrote The Canterbury Tales. Find the copy of The Canterbury Tales in the display case nearby. This bestseller broke new ground. It was written not in Latin, the language of scholars, but in the lingo of the streets. Also, Chaucer's body collection of stories told by pilgrims on their way to Canterbury gave the full range of life's experiences, happy, sad, silly, sexy, as well as devout. Late in life, Chaucer wrote an apology for those works of his that, quote, tend toward sin. The rest of the literature display is a greatest hits collection from Bronte to Kipling to Wolfe to Joyce. The displays change frequently. You may see early manuscripts by Charles Dickens, whose novels were as popular in his time as blockbuster movies are today. Jane Austen's stories of 19th century women seeking suitable husbands have become equally popular in the 21st century. The original Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll created a fantasy world where grown-up rules and logic were turned upside down. Also on display are superb works by contemporary writers, making it clear that Britain continues to be a powerful force in the world of ideas and imagination. The man who, more than any other, created the English language we know today is William Shakespeare. Find several documents about the man and his work in the freestanding glass case nearby. William Shakespeare This may be a bit ethnocentric, but I believe William Shakespeare is the greatest author in any language, period. He expanded and helped define modern English. In one fell swoop, he made the language of everyday people as important as Latin. In the process, he gave us phrases, like in one fell swoop, which we quote without even knowing it's Shakespeare. Perhaps just as important was his insight into humanity. Think of his great stock of characters and memorable lines. Brooding Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Tragic Julius Caesar. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Rowdy Falstaff. The better part of valor is discretion. And the star-crossed lovers Romeo and Juliet. But soft 
what light through yonder window breaks. Shakespeare probed the psychology of human beings 300 years before Freud. Even today, his characters strike a familiar chord. Look for early printed copies called folios of Shakespeare's plays. Since Shakespeare wrote his plays to be performed, not read, he only bothered to publish a few. But as his reputation grew, unauthorized bootleg versions began to circulate. Some of these were written by actors who were trying, with faulty memories, to recreate plays they had appeared in years before. Publishers also put out different versions of Shakespeare's plays. It wasn't until seven years after his death that this complete collection of Shakespeare's plays was published. The editors were friends and fellow actors. Some scholars have wondered if maybe Shakespeare had ghostwriters help him out on several of his plays. After all, they figured, how could a journeyman actor with little education have written so many brilliant masterpieces? And he was surrounded by other great writers, such as his friend and fellow poet Ben Jonson. Most modern scholars, though, agree that Shakespeare did indeed write the plays and sonnets attributed to him. Now find the famous engraving of Shakespeare that appears on the title page of one of his published works. This is one of only two portraits done during his lifetime. Is this what he really looked like? No one knows. The best answer probably comes from his friend, Ben Johnson, who wrote the introduction on the facing page. Johnson concludes, Reader, look not on his picture, but his book. Finally, turn your attention to displays on music. These feature manuscripts by classical composers and memorabilia of the Beatles. Music, the Beatles and others. Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, Bizet, the Beatles. Future generations will have to judge whether the musical quartet The Beatles ranks musically with artists such as Handel and Chopin, but no one can deny their historical significance. Look for photos of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr before and after their fame. The rock band burst onto the scene in the early 1960s to unheard-of popularity. With their long hair and loud music, they brought counterculture and revolutionary ideas to the middle class, affecting the values of an entire generation. Touring the globe, they served as a link between young people everywhere. Among the displays, you'll find the manuscripts of song lyrics written by Lennon and McCartney, the two guiding lights of the group. I Want to Hold Your Hand was the song that launched them into stardom. A Hard Day's Night and Help were title songs of two films capturing the excitement and chaos of their hectic touring schedule. Some call A Ticket to Ride the first heavy metal song. Yesterday by Paul was recorded with guitar and voice backed by a string quartet, a touch of sophistication from producer George Martin. Also, read the handwritten poem by a young John Lennon labeled Untitled Verse. Rambling, depressed, cynical but humorous. Is that a self-portrait down at the bottom? The Beatles' memorabilia hangs alongside manuscripts by Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, and others. Kind of an anti-climax after the Fab Four, I know. Often on display is a work by a German-born composer who found a home right here in London. Find George Frederick Handel's famous oratorio, The Messiah. 
it was written in a flash of inspiration. Three glorious hours of music in 24 days. The manuscript on display contains the final bars of its most famous tune. Hallelujah! And that's also a fitting end to our walk from Bibles to Beowulf to Beatles through the British Library. We hope you enjoyed the British Library. Thanks to Gene Openshaw, the co-author of this tour. If you're up for more London sightseeing, we have audio guides for the British Museum, the Westminster Walk, St. Paul's, and the City. Remember, this tour was excerpted from the Rick Steves London Guidebook, co-authored with Gene Openshaw. For more details on eating, sleeping, and sightseeing in London, refer to this year's edition of that guidebook. For more free audio tours and podcasts, and for information about our TV shows, bus tours, and travel gear, visit our website at ricksteves.com. This tour was produced by Cedar House Audio Productions. Thanks. Cheers. And bye for now. <laughs>